just what I needed. My best friend's girl. Good times roll. Now that's good rock and roll. And good rock and roll is powerful. It can lift us up. It can pull us through. So when in his own masterpiece, American Pie, Don McLean asks, do you believe in rock and roll? Can music save your mortal soul? The answer tonight and forever will be an unequivocal and an emphatic yes. We thank the cars, Elliot, Greg, Dave, Benjamin, and Rick. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. This band means so much to me and to millions of others. I know that Benjamin is here sharing this moment with you guys tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm over the moon and it's my great honor to induct into the Rock and Roll of Hall of Fame, The Cars. This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your hosts, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Cooney. Now, crank it so we got a special episode for folks tonight we're going to do an album review but this album review is a little left to center for us most of our audience falls under the hard rock heavy metal umbrella But if you know anything about the show and you know anything about me, I've talked about the cars a lot in my history of growing up rock. It was one of the first albums that I purchased with my own money, that Cars debut record. So it's a really important record to me in my youth. And tonight's show, we brought along a special guest, as we do on these album reviews, because you know Sonny and I, we always got to have a third party to kind of moderate between us. Otherwise, we end up... Moderate. Referee. Same thing. Yeah, same thing. Exactly. Otherwise, we end up beating each other up. Sonny and I like to go at it for musical differences, shall we say, from time and time again. So this week, we brought along our friend Joe Milligan, and Joe has just... It's not really new. Joe, right? This book has been out for a year or two now at this point, correct? Yes, sir. It was released in November of 2018. So it's about two years old now. And so we're just now getting around to it because you know us, we're always on top of things and we like to get things as soon as they come out. 10 years, man. 10. Where have you been for 10 years? I freaked out, joined the army, went into business for myself. I'm a professional killer. But Joe wrote a Benjamin Orr autobiography. Joe, tell us a little bit about that book. Well, first of all, I want to thank you and Sonny for having me on your show. This is a really cool setup, and I'm, I'm real glad to be here. So just to tell you real quickly about myself, I've been a published freelance writer and music journalist for about 20 years. But this Benjamin Orr biography is my first book. Up until I did this book, all my published writing was newspapers and magazines, Um, mostly music-related stuff. I do write for a couple of newspapers in my area and write about some community stuff, but it's mostly music-related. It's done really well. It's been a pretty unbelievable experience for me. One of the first questions I get asked is, Joe, why Benjamin Orr? (laughs) And, you know, it kind of happened by happenstance, really. This goes back a ways now. Um, Believe it or not, I worked on this book for a decade in my spare time. 
I interviewed over 120 people who knew Ben um, because when I started this book, Ben had already passed away. He passed away in 2000, and it was probably another seven years or so after that that I started this book project. What happened was, I don't know if you remember the original social media platform called MySpace. Um, <laughs> I see you're both chuckling, so I think you remember MySpace. Yeah, that's because um, we're old. That's why. Yeah, <laughs> well, I was trying to avoid that, but yeah, you're right. Well, I'll only speak for myself. I won't speak for you. But I had a MySpace page, and on that page, I you know listed a lot of my bands that I love and what influenced me and that I was a music journalist. And I'm from Boston, which is where the Cars, you know, launched their careers from. And a Cars slash Ben fan saw my MySpace page, saw that I was a writer, saw that I was looking to write a book, saw that I was from Boston and listed the Cars as one of my favorite bands. And she contacted me out of the blue and said, you should write a book about Ben Orr. And I asked the same question. Well, why Ben? I mean, I could see maybe, you know, writing a book about the band as a whole. Or if you were going to pick an individual out of the band, you know, probably Rick Ocasek. I mean, he was the the main songwriter and pretty much the front man of the band. You know, why Ben? And her response was just, just do me a favor and investigate him a little bit and see what you think. So that's what I did. I investigated Ben and I started finding out all of these cool things about him that I didn't know. I mean, obviously, I knew who Ben was, but I didn't really know much beyond the fact that he was you know, the bass player of the cars and that he sang some of their songs. And that's pretty much all I knew. But I started investigating his early life and I thought it was really cool because I found out that he was originally from Cleveland, which is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I thought that was really cool right off the bat. That was a good start. Then as I investigated him a little more, I started finding out these things about him that he wanted to be a musician his whole life. He quit high school as a sophomore to pursue his professional music career. He was a multi-instrumentalist. Everyone knows him as the bass player, but he actually started out as a drummer. He was taking drumming lessons when he was 10 years old, and he played guitar. Bass actually came along afterward when he was in the cars and they needed a bass player. So he was a multi-instrumentalist that I had no idea about. And also, the thing that really hooked me about wanting to write his story was I learned that in one of his early bands in Cleveland, he was 17 years old. He was the front man of this band called the Grasshoppers. And the Grasshoppers were a house band on this TV show based in Cleveland called Upbeat. And what Upbeat is, it's sort of the Cleveland version of American Bandstand. They would bring in these national acts to sing their songs. But the the little twist on Upbeat was that they had house bands playing behind them. You know, so when they segued in and out of commercials, they'd have a house band playing. So what they did, what the show executive producer did was they would go into Cleveland and look for local bands that they liked and would bring those bands in to be house bands on the show. And they would sign them for like 13-week contracts, and they got to be on this show. So Ben's band, The Grasshoppers, was a house band on Upbeat. So here I am thinking, here's this 17-year-old kid who quit high school to become a professional musician, and he's the front man of this band that's a nationally syndicated television show. And this is like a de- over a decade before the cars were even around. So that's really what hooked me to write about Ben. It wasn't even necessarily what he did with the cars. It was all these things that he had done in his younger day. And that's when I just decided, I got to tell this guy's story. And it kind of went from there. Hey, Joe, let me ask you this. Don't most bass players start out doing something else? Nobody really wants to be a bass player to begin with, do they? 
Oh, you know what? My answer to that is it's pretty funny. Um, I'm not a musician. The reason I became a music journalist was, was my way of being involved in music because I couldn't carry a tune if it had a handle on it. But the funny thing is, when I was in junior high school, I got a bass for Christmas. <laughs> so bass actually was my first instrument. But yeah, I see what you're saying, though. <laughs> it's my son's, too. Anthony's playing bass on purpose. Listen, I like to have a lot of fun at drummers and bass players <laughs> at Spence. I do it all the time. But Benjamin Orr wasn't really the face of the cars. So why write a book about Benjamin Orr, not Rick Ocasek? Do you think part of that is because Rick wrote all the songs? Or do you think it's because Rick was kind of... He was odd, right? He was sort of an odd person, an odd appearance. Yes, he was the front man or part-time front man, because to be honest, I never knew that they split the vocal duties as much as they did. That was all new to me. I had no clue about that. You're not the only one. Because, you know, when I decided that I was going to write about Ben, I actually went to some of my friends. When I started learning these things about Ben that I didn't know, I went to some of my friends who were Cars fans and asked them the same question. Do you know any of this stuff about Ben? And no one I talked to did. And what you just said, a lot of them said, Ben sings in the band? A lot of people didn't even realize that Ben split the vocals. And he sings a lot of their hits. Um, I mean, I know Rick does too, but I mean, their biggest hit was Drive. That hit number three on the Hot 100 singles chart, and that's Ben. But to try to answer your question, I think it might have been a little bit of both because Rick was definitely a unique character in his looks, in his mannerisms, and that kind of thing. But I do think that the main reason why he was the front man of the band was what you just said, that he was the main songwriter. Actually, he was the songwriter. He wrote all of their lyrics, all of their songs he wrote. When the band would go into the studio to start working on an album, it's not like the other guys didn't contribute, you know, but there was more on the music side of it. They all had their own ideas and they would all put it in the same pot and, you know, mix it all up. But Rick did write all the lyrics. So I think that lent him to sort of become the leader of the band. These are my songs. Another interesting thing about Rick is he kind of took a different approach. And this is early on in their careers before the cars even came about. Most bands, you know, you get together with a bunch of friends and guys that, you know, you're friends with and you all like the same kind of music. You get together, you form a band and then start writing songs. Rick actually took a different approach than that. Rick was writing songs before he had a band. So he would write all these lyrics to these songs and then he would go out and try to find people to bring in to help him bring his songs to life. So he actually took kind of a backwards approach to the way he wrote songs and the way he created bands. The book is very good, by the way, right? Thank Got my so copy much. right here. It seemed like when Cap and Swing didn't get a deal, which was the band before the Cars, yep. that's when it seemed like Rick took over. Because all the way up to then, it seems like Ben is the front man, not Rick. But the minute they don't get a deal, and I guess Rick goes, that's it. Everybody's gone. I'm cleaning house. And Ben yep. just basically takes a backseat. Shows his adaptability, there's no doubt, because there's plenty of musicians we all know that would have said, F you, and they're out of here. Well, I'll just go start my own thing. And Ben just takes a bad seat. It's very interesting, because he obviously had the songwriting chops, because later on, he puts together some solo stuff. Some stuff yeah. off the lace is really good. I know he didn't write all the lyrics, but obviously he wrote the melodies. But it really seems like Rick took over at that point. Is that, that right? Yeah. 
when Rick and Ben first got together, they, you know, had a couple of different bands, including Captain Swing, like you, like you just mentioned. And, and they had a partnership for several years before the cars came to be. But, you know, a thing about Ben, Ben did write songs when he was younger. Um, so it wasn't like he couldn't write songs, but he had even come out and said in a couple of different interviews that he wasn't necessarily comfortable with writing lyrics. Um, it's not that he couldn't do it, but words weren't exactly his thing, if you will. He was more into the music, writing melodies and that kind of thing. So I really think that, I mean, welcoming it might be a strong word, but I think when Rick took control of the lyrics part of it, I think Ben was okay with that because, like I just said, that wasn't necessarily his forte. And, you know, he was a very down-to-earth man. Although you look at him and you think, well, there's a rock star, so you figure he's got an ego this big. Uh, but he really wasn't that way. He was a down-to-earth kind of guy, and he pretty much took the attitude of, Rick, if you can write the songs and you can write hits, you go ahead and write the lyrics, and we'll contribute ideas musically, and, and I'll sing them. So they had a very unique partnership together in that regard that, you know, Ben didn't let his ego get in the way, and he knew they had something good, and Rick all of a sudden had the magic touch with the lyrics, and, you know, he said, you write them and I'll sing them, and that's sort of the way it went with their partnership. That's basically what Elton John does with Bernie Taupin, right? Bernie Taupin writes the lyrics, Elton John sings them. Yeah, you're right. Same type of thing, for sure. Yeah. Ben took a huge chance, too, because this whole grasshopper thing, again, in the book, they're having some success. They're about to hit the Hot 100, and Ben's worried about, well, these guys don't want to leave Cleveland. So yeah. they have a cap to their success. So I'm walking. And it takes him basically another 10 years to get the car started. So I'm sure he probably had some regret at some point, but that's a ballsy move and a lucky move at the same time, I guess. You're right. He did take a pretty big chance doing that. I think another part of that whole grasshopper thing was Ben was a lot younger than the other guys in the grasshoppers. All the other guys in the grasshoppers were all like married and had kids and regular jobs. So they were pretty much content with, you know, that was just like a part-time gig for them. They did the grasshoppers for fun. So Ben was, you know, maybe 10 years younger than the other guys in the band. So Ben definitely had different aspirations, different ideas about what he wanted to do. So, yeah, you're right, though. It was definitely a ballsy move, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> now, both Ben and Rick meet in Cleveland, correct? But uh, Rick ends up going to Boston before Ben. Is that right? That's correct. Um, Rick is originally from the Baltimore area. But when he was in high school, um, his dad got a transfer in his job, and he ended up in, I believe, Columbus. So Ben and Rick knew each other and knew who the other one was. They were in the same area, competing local bands. As a matter of fact, Rick tells a story where he actually remembers seeing Ben on the Upbeat show in The Grasshoppers that I had just mentioned earlier. So Rick is looking on TV, seeing Ben, and then he meets him a few years later and says, wow, here's the dude that was on TV. He's already a star. But yeah, they met, and they were, uh, the story goes they were at a party together, and they ended up down in the basement of this house, and there were some instruments around, and Ben picked up an acoustic guitar and sang a Beatles song to Rick, and Rick is quoted as saying that it was the most beautiful voice he had ever heard, and they formed their partnership right then. So they became a band, and they toiled around East Lansing, Michigan, different parts of Ohio. At one point, they decided to go to New York City and see if they could get a record deal there. They were in New York City, upstate New York, back to Ohio. So they really traveled. They toiled for a while before they ever got their deal. And you're right. At one point, Rick decided, I want to go to Boston. It's a college town. 
you know, students, the drinking age was 18, a lot of clubs and bars and places, you, um, colleges you could play at. So, and, and Boston was just a hotbed of music anyway. So Rick decided to go to Boston, but Ben stayed behind for a while because he had lost his dad at an early age and he wanted to stay behind and stay with his mom for a while to make sure that she got settled down and she was okay. So Rick did go to Boston first. He was there for a few months, kept calling Ben on the phone, though, saying, Ben, you got to come to Boston. You got to come. And then eventually Ben moved to Boston. And that's when they ended up in Boston and started the whole cat swing. Now, you talked about interviewing tons of people. I think you may have mentioned like 120 people or something. Correct. That were friends with Ben or close to Ben. Did you end up interviewing any of the rest of the band guys in the cars? I did. I interviewed David Robinson, the drummer, mm -hmm. and I interviewed Greg Hawks, the keyboard player. They were both kind enough to contribute. Both Elliot Easton and Rick respectfully declined to be involved in the project, but I'm forever thankful and grateful that David and Greg agreed to participate, you know, because it adds legit legitimacy to the project, you know? I admit that I probably would have felt a little weird if I wasn't able to get any of the surviving members to talk to me, but... Both Greg and David were great. You know, the, the things I did with them, uh, well, David Robinson, my uh, interviews with him were on the phone. I did meet Greg in person when I interviewed him. And I've met them both a couple of times since then. And actually, when my book did come out, I did a book event in Boston. And David was kind enough to come and attend my book event. So it was an honor for me to be able to sign a book for him and, and hand it to him. So it was really cool. So would you speculate as to why you think maybe Elliot or uh, Rick wouldn't want to participate at all in something like that? Do you think there was any kind of harsh feelings at the end between those guys as band members? Or No, I don't think it had anything to do with their relationships amongst them. When I tried to contact Elliot to interview him, he was doing a music project at the time called Tiki Gods was the name of the band. And I went through his publicist and um, requested an interview with him and didn't really get much of a, a reason why he just respectfully declined. When I tried to get a hold of Rick, I tell you, I, I portrayed Ben as a very private man in this book, which he was. Well, Rick takes that to the next level. <laughs> he is a very private man. And I tried to go through the proper channels and get a hold of his publicist, and I couldn't even get a question to him to even ask him if he would do it. Um, however, one of the gentlemen I interviewed in the book was a photographer in Boston at the time, and he remained friends with Rick, and he actually approached Rick on my behalf and said, look, I interviewed with Joe. He's a really good guy. He, he has great intentions with this book. It's not a backstage bullshit tell-all book. It's a respectable account of his life. And so he asked him on my behalf, and um, he just came back to me and said all he would really say was, I'm glad he's doing the book. Ben deserves for his story to be told, and I give my blessing, um, but I'm not going to be a part of it. And that's basically how it was left. So gave me his blessing, but I couldn't reel him in. <laughs> yeah. It was interesting reading this because there were some connections. And I was like, oh, you ended up answering some questions in my life that, uh, well, that wasn't your intent, obviously. My dad is of East Indian descent. And I was wondering, because we moved to California in 1980, and the Cars was one of the bands he really liked. And I was wondering, why the Cars? Like, of all people, right? Like, why would you care? But I was born in Cleveland. We lived in Parma. I was uh -huh. in Garfield Heights. 
And wow. Ben, I guess, was a name there, and so was Rick. And they were probably playing clubs nearby, and that's how yeah. kind of my dad got into it. And that makes a lot more sense than anything else that I'd ever come up with. Wow, that is so cool. That's so cool. And he's a, and he's a Parma guy. Yeah. <laughs> and, was, and was from Parma Heights. I tell you, one yeah. thing that um, I talk about a lot in the book is um, Ben was a very loyal guy. And one of those guys that never forgot where he came from, even after he became famous. Very proud of Cleveland. Always went back to Cleveland a lot to visit family and friends. Um, he loves that city. And um, I tell a little story in the book because I interviewed a bunch of guys that were in early bands with him back in the Cleveland area. And they said whenever the cars were on tour and they were getting ready to come into Cleveland, he would call all his buddies up and say, get ready, I'm coming in. And he would come to Cleveland and he'd get all his buddies tickets to the shows, backstage passes. He'd have limos go pick them up at their house. Wouldn't let any of them spend a dime. So Ben never forgot where he came from. And how ironic is it that, I'm probably getting a little too far ahead of the story, but how ironic is it that Ben's band ends up getting elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in his hometown of Cleveland. That's a pretty amazing thing right there, I think. Hey, I wonder if Mr. Pooney was one of the people that Ben called up and bought down to the concert. <laughs> I don't know. He never he never took me. I <laughs> didn't even tell me about it. <laughs> you would have been like, what, one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you want to hear another connection? Oh, Ben, I'm sorry. If you're listening in the sky somewhere, I'm sorry. The first song I ever did karaoke was Drive. <laughs> I was hammered because I was so nervous, right? And I'm probably in my early 20s, and I'm sure I was in the key of Q flat, and oh my God, Baruto, I'm sure. And since we got to be here, let's my god well i'm sure you're not the only person to say that they drive for karaoke that's for sure you know that's funny <laughs> so joe we like to get a little background on our guest for you what was the early rock and roll you got into i mean the cars couldn't have been the first band you were into were they well i tell you they were one of um you know how you said at the beginning of the show that um that first cars album was like either the or one of the first albums you ever bought with your own money. Yes. Same with me. I was in middle school. Um, I was in seventh or eighth grade when that debut Cars album hit. So, and of course, them breaking out of Boston was kind of big for me because I felt a little bit of kinship with them because I'm originally from Boston as well. And Aerosmith is my sentimental favorite band, another Boston band. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, in middle school, I started getting introduced to rock and roll. And, you know, that first Cars album was one, Van Halen one that came out in 78. That was another one. Mm -hmm. That debut Boston album. There's mm -hmm. another Boston band for you. So that classic rock genre was my introduction to music. 
So actually, that first Cars album was one of the first albums I ever bought with my own money. That and Candy O. So, yep, they're one of the first bands I ever got into. You know what's weird? And it never hit me really until today when I was thinking about it. But I tell this story. So I went to Sears because they used to sell albums. And I walked up to the mall to get my first album. And I ended up buying two albums that day. One of them was the Cars debut. The other album was the Boston debut. So I just realized today, hey, both the albums I bought were from Boston bands. It's just one of those weird things I never really thought about before. But yeah, that was my introduction I won't say it's my introduction into rock and roll, but it was my first two album purchases. And, you know, it's kind of a diverse choice of two albums because you got one that's more straight ahead, classic hard rock, you know, with Boston and the cars, which is sort of like this hodgepodge of rock and roll, punk and new wave, you know, right. and it's just this, I don't know if punk's the right word, new wave, power, pop, rock and roll is kind of what the combination of that was. But there was something that drew me to that album. You know, being able to go back and listen to that debut album this past couple of weeks, because I knew we were preparing for this album review, it just brought back so many memories for me. So many memories. God, there was so much good material on that record. Oh, yeah. You know, um, in the very beginning of the book, in the um, about the book section, um, I tell a little story in there how... You know, when I was in middle school, I have two brothers. My parents used to take me and my two brothers and we'd go to the local pizza place to have dinner and there was a jukebox there. So I have this memory of, you know, pumping quarters into the jukebox and picking out songs that I wanted to hear as I was just learning about rock and roll. And there's two or three car songs that were in that jukebox that I used to press and play all the time. And now I look back and how ironic is it now that I can remember playing Let's Go on that jukebox, and then 40 years later, it's the title of my book? Yeah. <laughs> now, if you had told me that back then, that that was going to happen, I would have said you were freaking crazy. Um, but I look back on that now and go, oh, my God, I can't believe this. You know, I'm listening to Let's Go when I'm in eighth grade, and then all these years later, I've written a book. You know, basically, I know it's about Ben, but basically about the band, and the name of the book is Let's Go, and it's kind of the rallying cry I use for the book. Pretty amazing thing for me um, to be able to tell that story. It's it's really cool. We're going to put all the links to the book and everything in our show notes. So you want to tell folks what the total title of the book is, and then we'll put it all in the show notes. That way, when people want to go get the book, they can just scroll down and click on that link. Yeah. The, um, the official title is Let's Go, Benjamin Orr and the Cars. And that was sort of kind of half my idea, half the publisher's idea. The wording of Let's Go just seemed like a perfect title. And, you know, Ben was, um, even though I, I mentioned he's a private guy, Ben was also very outgoing. And the other guys in the band were a little more reserved. So when they were out on tour, Ben always wanted to go out on the town. After the show was over, he'd go, you know, hit the hotel bar and get in a limo and go drive around and find a club and look for maybe a local band to see. So I, I always felt like, you know, he would like, you know, let's go as in let's go do something. So that was my idea. And then the publisher, of course, thinking about marketing said, you know, there's a lot of people who know who Ben is, but there's probably a lot of people who might not know exactly who he is. So I think you should include the cars in the title. So when people see that book on the shelf and see that person on the cover, they'll know for sure who he's associated with. 
So it was kind of a marriage of two ideas between me and the publisher, and that's how the title was created. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. So we're going to get into a little bit more of the book as we go through, but it's time to review this Cars debut album. So I'll give a little bit of information on the record. The album was released June 6th of 78, recorded in February of 78 in AIR London Studios. The genre is labeled as new wave power synth rock. I guess maybe I would label it as rock and roll new wave power pop. I think covers it more. The length of the album, 3540, the label was Electra Records and the producer was Roy Thomas Baker. This record ended up selling 6 million copies. Let's talk a little bit about the album art. So the album art, the cover model was, and I'll try to pronounce this, Natalia. Yeah, I got no shot at this. Mediva. I don't know. She's Russian. She's a Russian-born model, singer, writer, and journalist. And she is the one that's on the cover of that debut record. And she's super hot. You know, she was a playmate. She was a playmate. Of course, Sonny knows she's a playmate. <laughs> and supposedly, according to her ex-husband, she committed suicide via overdose of heroin in 2003. Wow, that's a sad story. Yeah. Who brought the good news, Bear? Somebody give her some fucking honey. Natalia Medvedeva. I gave up a long, a long time ago even trying to do it. <laughs> I don't even try anymore. <laughs> Natalia something Russian. <laughs> Just call her Natalia. <laughs> Natalian. <laughs> Well, that's a that's a sad story because she was quite a looker. I didn't know she was in Playboy, but Sonny reads those for the articles. <laughs> What's your thought of the album cover? It's pretty iconic, isn't it, Sonny? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt. Uh, you know, there's obviously there's stories about Rick wasn't in love with it, right? Because he didn't pick it. And there was uh, band members that wanted to draw stuff that kind of didn't end up there. That was going to cost a little bit less money. But in the end. The album art ends up being iconic, and I don't think you can lose there. Well, I think it's probably not quite as iconic as what Candio became. And I know that the drummer took a big hand in the art direction of the album covers later on, but not so much with this first record. Is that your understanding, Joe? Yeah. So my little story about um, the first album cover was that and 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 I got this from the horse's mouth because I mentioned I interviewed David Robinson, the drummer, and he told me the story about it. He was always an artist and into art. So it was a big thing for him to be able to do. He wanted to do the album art for the cover. And he actually did create cover art for it. And when they presented it to the label, they nixed it and said, nope, we're not doing that. And, you know, there's not really much they could do about it because they're, it's their first album. They're an up and coming band. They don't even know how this is all going to turn out. So they said, no, we'll take care of the cover. But interestingly enough, if you look on the inside sleeve, that was the artwork that David had put together to be on the cover. So they, you know, they compromised with him. At least they said, no, this can't be the cover. It's just too weird. You know, we'll use some of your art direction on the inner sleeve. Um, so they kind of compromised with him a little bit. And also, you're right. The other guys in the band did not like that cover. 
there's a quote from Elliot Easton somewhere that I read that he said, I got so sick of looking at that face, as beautiful as she is, I got so sick of looking at that face and that steering wheel, I just, I can't stand that cover anymore. Of course, in the next breath, he realizes and says that, you know, I know it's iconic for everybody, but we got tired of it. And the other thing I'll say about it is, once that album sold that many copies and they were on their way, David Robinson was allowed to do the artwork for the rest of their albums along the way. David got to turn the tables and say, no, I'm doing the art direction from here on in. And he had everything to do with that Candy O cover. So they controlled him until that first album sold like hotcakes. And then from there, David took control of all the artwork. So I think that's pretty cool. That's amazing how that happens. A band that doesn't sell one record gets controlled by the record label and then six million records later. Hey, look at us. Uh, we get to say no now. <laughs> okay, you can do what you want. Just just make another record that's going to sell millions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think the six million records helps. But these guys aren't exactly spring chickens when this album comes out. Rick is in his mid-30s. Ben's in his early 30s. David's about to turn 30. And Elliot and Greg are in the mid-20s. So it doesn't surprise you that the musicianship and the songwriting here as as iconic as it is, because this is a very tenured musicianship type band. Yeah, it's a seasoned band for sure. And some of the things that get lost with bands like this, you know, the new wave bands, the power pop bands, they don't talk a whole lot about the musicianship. But Elliot Easton is one of the people that drew me into this band. His playing as a guitar player is so underrated and so amazing. I mean, he's a he's a Berkeley guy, right? He's a yes, he he's a Berkeley schooled individual. He is not a slouch. To I dug up online when I was doing research today, I found this really old 47-minute movie that was called like Cars, Guitars, and Elliot Easton or something. And this uh, reporter does this documentary and interviews Elliot Easton, spends time at his house, interviews him in the studio and all these different places. It's about 47 minutes long. It was really entertaining. It was done, best I could tell by the footage. It looked like it was done somewhere around like 78, 79, 80. Wow. Uh, so it's really old, but it was, you know, decent enough to watch. I highly recommend people go out there and check it out because you get a view, an inside look at the type of player that Elliot Easton is. You know, when Sonny just mentioned um, the songs being, uh, you know, for a debut album, the songs were very refined and the musicianship is incredible. Well, what's unique about that first album is, the guys had been playing those songs in the clubs and live for a couple of years when they went into it. So when they went in to do that, that album, they did, they completed the whole thing in like a little more than a week. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was no overdubs and what are we going to change around and who's got different ideas. They already had those songs down pat from playing live. So they just went in and banged them out. They had already been playing the songs a lot. So they weren't new songs to them. It was part of their repertoire already. Well, it's, it's what they say. It's the old story that uh, every band has their entire life to write their first debut album, right? Yeah. It's, it's everything after that that they're rushed to do, but they've got their entire career to write that first debut record. It's no different than, you know, with bands like Van Halen and everything else. Same thing. Let me get into a few more facts about this record. The Cars peaked at number 18 on Billboard 200 in March of 79. 
spending 139 weeks on the chart. The record was also ranked number four on the Billboard 200 year chart for 79. Three singles were released from the album, Just What I Needed, number 27 in the U.S. and number 17 in the U.K., Best Friends Girl, which ended up number 35 in the U.S., number three in the U.K., and Good Times Roll, which ended up at number 41 in the U.S., all of which enjoyed heavy airplay on AOR radio stations. Aside from the singles, album tracks, You're All I've Got Tonight, Bye Bye Love, and Moving In Stereo all became radio favorites. So not only did the singles do well, but the radio stations even took to the things that weren't singles off the album. I've heard every single song on this album I've heard on classic rock radio. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, like, don't you stop. I heard over and over again, but pretty much, no, every song on this debut album has been played on classic rock radio. You know, they're all, and most of them are staples. I mean, all mixed up in moving in stereo weren't even released as singles. Those songs are iconic now they weren't even released as singles it's amazing all mixed up was the b-side to moving in stereo yeah incredible every song on it is iconic to me you know it's funny the band actually has a little joke about it that they have said in a couple of past interviews the debut album is like their greatest hits tongue-in-cheek of course but yeah i would buy that if it wasn't for all the mtv success that they had with heartbeat city they had a lot of damn success with that record oh yeah absolutely and candy o did pretty good too (laughs) we're not all gonna agree on these nine songs i can tell you that right now this is why we need a referee (laughs) (laughs) that's funny All right, so let's start with Good Times Roll, right? Sarcastic view of Rock's Good Times, I guess. This is uh, Dire Straits stole it later and wrote Money for Nothing. But, Joe, what do you think of the Good Times Roll? Well, Good Times Roll, you know, kind of has a special place in my heart because I also talk in the book in the very beginning when I was talking about, you know, early memories I have of listening to the cars and discovering them. The very first time I heard the cars, and I swear this is true, I told you I was in middle school, so I'm, I'm on my Babe Ruth baseball team, and we're getting ready to go to an away game, and I'm going in my coach's car to go to drive to this game, and we get in his car, and he puts in the debut album, an eight-track of the debut album, plops that in his car stereo, and the song Good Times Roll starts with that you know, that synth drum, doom, doom. And then the Greg Hawks keyboard that sounds like a car horn, doom, doom, ding, doom, doom, ding. I swear, I it stuck in my mind. I was immediate, like, who in the world is this?
I know it sounds a little cliche, but it was the first time I heard them and it's stuck in my mind. And I'm telling you right now, right? It, to this day, I can re- remember the exact moment when I first heard the cars. And then when I got home after the game, I went to my friend's house to say, hey, I heard this cool new band. He's got the album and he's playing it in his room. And we sat there and played the album over and over and over again. So Good Times Roll just has a special place in my heart because it was the first time I heard the band. And to this day, I can remember it in my mind like it happened yesterday, hearing that car horn sounding keyboard at the beginning of that song. So that's my Good Times Roll story. (laughs) Steven, you have to agree. Like The tempo is almost frustratingly dragging, right? It works. But 33 years later today, no way you can start an album with this track, right, Stephen? The Cars are a bit of a different band than what you and I are used to listening to. And we've made it clear before that with most of the stuff we listen to, we want to get punched in the face from the get-go. With The Cars, it's a little bit different. Yes, it is a bit of a plotting tempo that moves along at a fairly snail's pace for a first song. It's a slow roller. Yeah. I, I get that. Yeah. And out of the gates, I'm not drawn to slow rollers. So I might have moved something like this to another number two position in the record. But that being said, there's just something hooky and catchy about this whole song. I love it. I don't have a bad thing to say about it other than what I've already said, if you want to take that as bad. But I love this song. It moves along. I'm just not sure from a sequencing standpoint whether I would have this at the number one position. That's it. Yeah. And I'll also tell you that I love those big backing vocals that come in after the song is so stripped down because it kind of punches you in the face. Going with my best friend's girl next, you know, I got to tell you, everything... I like about the cars is all in this song from the opening riff all the way through Rick's vocals, all the way through the back and vocals, all the way through Elliot's. So it's absolutely one of their best songs. And I think it connects with me because I love this subject matter. Anytime there's a song about your like best friend's girl that you want her to be yours. Like for some reason that one connects with me. I don't know that that's happened to me before, but it connects with me. Joe, what do you think about this song? Yeah, you're right. It, that song has, Everything that's cool about the cars is is in that song. You know, the syncopated hand clapping at the beginning that they do. And you mentioned the layered vocals. And that was really a big Roy Thomas Baker thing there. You know, that is like that's straight out of the layered vocals you hear on the stuff he did with Queen. That layered vocal background sound that is totally Roy Thomas Baker. And as a matter of fact, I talk in the book about how at the time... So this is the late 70s. He had a special machine that he used to record albums with. It was a 40-track recording machine. And at the time, your standard operation or your standard recording studios used 24 tracks. So he had a special machine. And believe it or not, the label Elektra were the ones who suggested the band work with Roy Thomas Baker. And when the band listened to Queen songs, they weren't really sure that it was going to work because Queen's that real bombastic, you know, layered sounds. And and the Cars were really a more stripped down sounding, more simpler band, not as complicated sounding as Queen. But it turns out those layered vocals, I mean, that ended up being a staple for the Cars for the rest of their career. So even though they weren't sure it was going to work in the beginning, It certainly did. 
Stephen, my guess is this should have started the album, right? If you ain't doing the hand claps at the beginning with this record, you ain't cool. You ain't cool unless you pee your pants. This song is power pop goodness. And as a high schooler like you, Sonny, I absolutely identified with the lyrics of this song. The lyrics are perfect for somebody that's, you know, 15, 16 years old in high school. And it's just this is such a power pop song. So good. So good. One other quick thing. Do you know how many times Rick would get asked by um, people who are interviewing? Did you write this song about somebody? Is there a best friend's girl? Who's the girl? And if it was, he never revealed it. But that used to be a question that was asked of him constantly. Who is the best friend's girl? Was it Ben's girlfriend? Was it your girlfriend? Who is this girl? And he would never... He would never divulge. <laughs> I thought Joe was about to say Rick was asked how many hand claps at the beginning. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Don't worry. It'll be a trivia question someday. That's All right. Funny. So let's move to just what I needed. Joe mentioned Benny had this nickname, Benny 11 letters. That's because probably nobody can pronounce his last name, but that sounds like a mafia name. Seriously. What'd you think about just what I needed? <laughs> just what I needed. The band thought that that was going to be like the biggest hit on the album. It wasn't the biggest hit chart-wise, but that was the first single that was released for the album. And they actually released the single a week before the album hit. I love it because of Ben's vocals. And, you know, I don't ever try to take anything away from Rick because he he was much more of a quirky vocalist and Ben was more of the smooth crooner, the smoother voice. But Ben's voice, I mean, 
it's so killer in this song. And the other thing that I really love about this song is, you know, Ben was not a virtuoso bass player by any means. He wasn't flying up and down the fretboards. He liked to sit in the pocket. And that's what the Cars music needed. It wasn't complicated music. So they didn't need a virtuoso bass player. They needed somebody to sit in the pocket and play a solid bass. And that bass line that is all through this album, that don't, 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 that don't sound. And even though it's just a simple bass line, the way he creates it, it's just so deep and thick and sitting in the pocket that that's the first song on the album where that don't, 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 don't bass line really hits you. And when you have the stereo cranked right in front of you, you can feel it in your chest, those bass lines. So that's what really stands out to me about that song. Even though it's a simple bass line, I, I just love the way that comes off. Stephen, here's a good mix of the new wave, the power pop, the little bit of hard rock punch. Like This song's got all three, right? Yeah, it does. And it's the first time in the album where you hear Ben Orr sing, right? Yeah, I don't remember if this is the first song I heard or not. I remember probably the first time I heard the Cars was on the radio because back then that's all I was listening to was AM and FM radio. So, But yeah, it's a good combination, to your point, Sonny, of all those things. And I love it. So there's been a bunch of covers of this thing. I don't know how many bands listen to our podcast, but I'm just tell you tell you right now, stop covering this song because I've heard Poison do it. It was brutal. I heard the Killers do it. It was brutal. I heard the Red Hot Chili Peppers do it. They can't capture the feel of the song. Stop doing the song. Pick something else. Um, 
because you're ruining the song. It's supposed to be a feel-good song. After I heard Poison do it, I wanted to jump off a bridge. Um, <laughs> all right. Next song, I'm in touch with your world. Elliot really shines on this song. Joe, what do you think of the song? I really like this track because, to me, it's different than all the rest of the songs. It's that quirky-sounding um, and you're right, El- Elliot's guitar work is fantastic in it. But um, Greg really shines in it because Greg Hawks, I've mentioned Ben being a multi-instrumentalist at the beginning of this interview. So is Greg. Keyboards, guitar, saxophone. You know, he's another Berkeley guy. Greg Hawks also attended Berkeley. And I love hearing all his little quirky noises and the whistles. And it's a different song than the rest of it. And it's almost like, okay, let's break this up a little bit. You know what I mean? Not that I'm saying that it was all starting to sound the same per se, but it's like a, a quirky, different kind of song that's just dropped in the middle of the whole thing. And because it's different, that's why it stands out to me. So that's what I think about that track, that it's just that quirkiness that I really love about it. And, and again, like I said, Elliot's guitar work is, is phenomenal in it. Joe, I think quirky is a good word for it because I'll tell you, as a rock fan or a top 40 pop rock fan, if this is the first car song you hear, I don't know if you ever listen to the cars again, Stephen. <laughs> come on. Like, it's an okay song, but it's just too different. Yeah. So here's the way I view I'm in touch with your world. I think it's perfectly placed as the number four track out of five on the first side. I think it is quirky, but it's interesting quirky so yeah to your point Sonny if this is the first cars tune I hear I might not go any farther 
So I understand your point with that. But on this record, when I'm listening to this record as a piece of artwork, I don't know if love is the right word for this song. I don't know if I love this song. I like this song. And it is quirky and it is weird and it is interesting. And we talked about how Ben might not be necessarily a virtuoso. They were anchored by two virtuosos in Hawks and Easton. Those two guys anchored the sound of the cars. I think it took all of them to make that sound, but I think those two guys really anchored their sound. Yeah. A lot of people describe, sorry, as Greg sort of being the guy that brought it all together. He kind of weaves it all together, all their different sounds. But I totally understand what you're saying, and I think that's a good point, that they are the anchors that sort of bring it all, bring the whole sound together. Greg Hawks is an amazingly underrated musician. I mean, he just kind of sits on the side and does his little thing, but I, he was very, very important to that band. I think like he did everything else. You know, you have your guitar player, your bassist, your drummer, and your other guitar player, and anything else that was needed, he did. The synthesizers, the keyboards, the uh, saxophone, and all these other quirky little things that he did, um, I think he really helped tie their sound together for sure. All right, so next is Don't Just Stop. A little bit more danceable, probably power pop tune. The nice thing, Joe, here is I think he realized quickly Rick doesn't take himself too seriously. So it kind of makes the cars fun, right? Yeah, you're right. He has so many lyrics that he's one of those guys that, and Lennon and McCartney could do this, especially Lennon, like with the song Come Together. He could just bring all these words that make no sense and you have no idea what he's singing about, but it sounds right and it fits. And I think Rick was amazing at that you can read some lyrics that he writes and you can sit there and study it all night long and go i still don't know what the hell this guy's talking about (laughs) it's just he writes some really weird quirky lyrics but the words sound right together and they fit together so are you right i think he does have a certain element about himself where he didn't take himself completely serious seriously and i think that really shows later on in some of their videos I mean, they did some videos that were just like silly, you know, we're just going to make fun of ourselves and I'm going to stick my head on a little fly and buzz around the room and do all these weird video things. So they did try to have fun, too, I think. I mean, in the end, they were a serious band, of course, but I think Rick did have a certain element about himself where he wasn't going to take himself completely seriously. And this is a good example. I like Elliot's upbeat, quirky guitar riffs at the beginning. I think is really cool. I know it leans more towards power pop than how I'm going to describe it now, but it, it, because it's so upbeat and fast, it, it like it almost has a punk kind of feel to it, to me, as compared to the other stuff on the album. It's got a little bit more of an edge to it, a little more upbeat, a little faster. So that's another element of it that I really like.
Yeah, Joe, I had that written down too. It's like every punk band in 78, 79 that's about up and coming is listening to this song going, oh man, all we got to do is speed this up about 50% and we got a hit. Because <laughs> every punk song just sounds like this faster to me. Steven, you think that was the clash is like, all right, we got one. <laughs> this is a song that walks the fine line between punk and new wave with a little bit of rock and roll. You you take that beginning, that's rock and roll. That's rock and roll stuff. Don't You Stop is what I picture at a Valley Girls party when people in skinny ties are doing the Carlton dance. <laughs> to Don't You Stop. That's, that's what I picture this song. I love this song. I think it's a perfect closer to side one. I mean, but that's what I picture. I picture Valley Girl because that was the time, right? The time frame is right. Valley Girl, Skinny Ties, Crossover, New Wave, Punk, Power Pop, and, you know, just enough rock and roll thrown in there for good measure. Good stuff. You're all I've got tonight's next. And I'll tell you, this one kind of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit because this was the song I was humming all day the other day. So I was in Vegas. I'm walking around. I'm humming this song. And I'm like, what the hell am I humming? And it happened to be this song. And just kind of goes to show you, it probably could have been a single. They could have wrote this album probably another two or three months if they really wanted to off of this single. Joe, what do you think? You're right. It absolutely could have been and maybe should have been a single. And, you know, when I talked to, um, I believe it was David Robinson who felt like they could have created a couple of more singles and kept going with that. But I think by then the record company was already asking for the next album. They were like, no, no, we gotta, we gotta ride this momentum, bring it into the next album. Let's start thinking about what we were going to do next. Um, but you're right. This song very well could have been another single for sure. I love the heavy drum beat. There's that layered vocal chorus again that's so great. Another great guitar solo. And what something I really like about this song, you know, after Don't You Stop ends side one, if we're talking vinyl here, and you're taking that quick break to flip things over, side two is just a masterpiece to me. The whole second side. And I think something that makes it happen is they segue out of one song and into the next. And Roy Thomas Baker has been noted as saying that he did that on purpose. And he said that when the DJs first started playing this album on the air, that sometimes two songs would end up playing when they didn't even mean to do it because you couldn't tell the first song was ending. And the next thing they knew, the second song was already going, so they couldn't cut it off. So he said that was kind of a trick that they used to do a nice smooth segue into the next song and the DJ might not even realize the song is ending and will fade it out. And the next thing you know, the second song is playing, but I love how it segues into the next song. So great beginning to side B.
Stephen, you know I am a sucker for those like guitar fill, earworms, answering Rick's vocal melody. Like, I love that stuff. How about you? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff on that record this way. And I agree with you. This is a, this is definitely a single they missed the boat on. This is something that could have done really well, in my opinion. It's another hooky, catchy song. It's great. I love a lot of the synth drums on this uh, record, the way it sounds. It just ties together really well. The next song. <laughs> so I'm listening to this thing on shuffle as I'm walking around Vegas. And I'm like, oh, God damn Talking Hoods tune like popped in because sometimes what happens on Spotify is when the album's over, like it'll give you songs that kind of you might like. And I'm like, what the hell is this Talking Heads tune doing on this thing? And it was Bye Bye Love, right? I'm like, oh, I must not know this song very well because really it does kind of sound Talking Heads, I guess. But I guess Talking Heads is synth pop too. Joe, what do you think about this song? Well, it's kind of ironic that you just said that you didn't necessarily know the song very well or thought maybe that was the case. Because in a lot of interviews I've done for this book, one of the questions I generally get asked is, and it's a hard question to answer, but for any band that you love, but I've been asked in interviews, you know, what is the quintessential car song to you? Or what's your favorite car song? And arguably, this might be it. And not that it necessarily does anything out of the ordinary as compared to other car songs. It's Ben's vocal for me. You know, and I might be biased because I took a decade and wrote a book about the gentleman, even though I never met him. I interviewed enough people where I feel like in some strange way that I did know him and just his haunting vocal take. It's almost like the way he enunciates some lyrics, he does it like nobody else. It's, it's, it's almost like his own language to me and his vocal style. And in this song, he just does it for me. And then, of course, there's that don't, 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 don't bass line that I was talking about earlier that goes right through the song. And it's got one of my favorite Rick lyrics in it. It's such a wavy midnight and you slip into insane electric angel rock and roller. I hear what you're playing. And part of me says, what the hell does that mean? But another part of me says it's perfect. The way Ben sings it and the way he enunciates it, it's hard for me to explain, but this is arguably my favorite car song just because of the way Ben presents it in his vocals. It just, I could play it 10, 20 times in a row, play it forever and never get sick of it.
like this song too by the way there's a lot of female cars fans out there who follow my book and interact with me and they like swoon <laughs> over bye bye over ben singing bye bye love so i figured i'd throw that in there too 1-800 joe milligan <laughs> yeah <laughs> steven i think this is the point in the album where i realized that Man, you don't have to be Bumblebee. You can be simple. And as long as you have like great musicianship and melody, man, the songs just work. What do you think about this song? Dude, I'm going to mirror a lot of what Joe said. This song for me, and I don't know why this song sticks with me. Maybe it was the first song I heard. I have no idea. But there is something about this song that no, no matter how many times I hear it, I love this tune. From the opening, and then it falls into that groove and the lyrics. Joe touched on it earlier. I can't feel this way much longer, expecting to survive with all these hidden innuendos just waiting to arrive. It's such a wavy midnight and you slip into insane electric angel rock and roller. I hear what you're playing. That is freaking brilliant. I love the lyrics to this song. I love this song and arguably one of my favorite car songs of all time. Love this too. So cool. I love it. So next we go to moving in stereo and uh, here's where like when Ben is singing that it's so tough part of the song, he really shows his vocal range that I'm pissed at the producer that his vocal isn't loud enough in the verses, right? I know he's trying to create this dynamic piece with Ben getting up there and showing his range, but I'm like, God, why isn't that vocal not loud enough for the verses to begin with? Overall, it's a good song to me, though. Joe, what did you think about moving in stereo? You know, I'm going to try not to be repetitive after what I had just said about the last song, but moving in stereo and the last song as well that we're going to talk about next, to me, it's Ben at his vocal best. Uh, moving in stereo is such a moody, lush sounding, has kind of a haunting kind of vibe to it. His vocals are just so pristine. It almost has like a baritone Elvis kind of sound to it. And, you know, uh, Elvis was one of Ben's heroes when he was growing up. Um, like one of the first memories he had as a kid was singing Elvis songs in his living room when he was like five years old to his parents and the company that they had over at the house. And I really think that he tried to put some sort of Elvis element into that crooning, smooth vocal style that he had. 
And moving in stereo, just it's the peak of it. And of course, I don't want to get ahead of us, but segueing right into All Mixed Up. To me, those two songs are really one song. I don't like hearing one without hearing the other. And as a matter of fact, I go back to Bye Bye Love with it. How I just told you before that I've had the question asked to me if you could pick one car song. Most of the time I cheat and say, I'm sorry, I can't just say one. It's three. And it's the end of the first album. Bye Bye Love, Moving in Stereo, all mixed up. It's all one song to me. They all segue in and out of each other perfectly. And if I hear one of those songs on the radio without hearing the other ones, it seems kind of weird to me. That's how much the end of this album seems just perfect to me. The way they pull it off. You can't get better to me. I love it that much. I really do. Steven, this one's a little more techno pop, right? Oh, without a doubt. So you talk about quirky, where Okasak is a little bit more quirky in his vocals than Ben Orr. Well, this song sort of proves you a little bit wrong in that respect to me. 
because his vocals are a little quirky in this particular song. They just sound, you know, they're a little bit robotic sounding. For me, you talk about how the moving in stereo into all mixed up, it's bye bye love into moving in stereo for me because at the end of that, da 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 and that keyboard, you hear it come in. The keyboard at the beginning of moving in stereo at the end of the bye bye love. I mean, listen, is this song as big of a song as it is without Fast Times at Ridgemont High? I don't know, man. No respecting kid can say anything bad about this song and that scene. That has got to be one of the most iconic marriages of music and movie footage of the 80s, right? Is there a kid out there that doesn't know the footage of this song and that movie? Come on. It's iconic. And our first look at boobs. (laughs) (laughs) One One more thing I'd like to add about that song is, one of my favorite Ben bass lines is towards the end, one of the ending bridges on moving in stereo. It's that boom, 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 boom. And it's a simple bass line. It's not like he's doing anything necessarily virtuoso or yeah. anything, but just that bass line at that br- that bridge at the end just ties it all together to me. I'm, ben is really one of my favorite bass players, and he's not, he's a very simple bass player. He just sits in the pocket. I don't know what it is, but the way he does it, I know I'm probably just being biased again, but that bass line he does at the end, towards the end of moving in stereo, is just killer to me. Jesus, Joe, why don't you write a book about it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You ought to write a book about that guy. Jesus, you ought to write a book about that guy. Oh, wait a minute. You did. That's so funny. (laughs) Moving in stereo, man. I love the guitar riff at the beginning, too. That's just straight up almost hard rock riffing with that guitar. Nice distortion there and just, you know, love it, love it, love it. Good stuff. So we end the album with All Mixed Up. There's a great groove here. And again, the backing vocals during that chorus, man, they are awesome. Joe, you're in love with this song, I know. Tell us more. <laughs> yeah, I you know, I'm sorry that I'm starting to feel like I'm getting redundant now, but I'll just add, you know, say one more time that just the way these last three songs of this album blend together is just perfection to me. And um, I also, I had mentioned before how Greg Hawks was kind of like the gadget guy and did all the other things that the rest of the guys couldn't do. The little saxophone solo he does at the end of this song as the album fades out, It's one of those things where I almost, I don't want it to end. He goes into this sax solo. I don't know exactly how long it is, but it can't be more than like, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 seconds at the most. But as it's fading out, I'm almost like reaching out going, no, don't end that. Keep going with that. I love his sax solo at the end and it just fades out perfectly to me. Like I said, man, the last three songs on this album, just perfection to me, for sure. She never does arrive 
Steven, how do you think the album ends? I think it ends okay, sequencing-wise. All mixed up, I don't quite have the affinity for it like Joe does. I don't mind it. It's just as it ranks with the rest of the material on the record. Like I said, it's perfectly placed at the end of the record. That's okay for me. And it's a good tune. Good groove, good tune. It was the B-side to moving in stereo. Ben does a, a great job on it. So it's a good tune. All right, Joe, where we go next is going to be tough for you because normally we say top two, bottom two, right? Two songs you love on the record, two you can live without. We already know you're going to cheat and say bye-bye love, moving the story all mixed up. So fine, we'll let you cheat since you wrote the book, and we'll make that your top two. But what are the two that you can live without on this album? Wow. Jeez. <laughs> um, the two that I could live without. You know, I would probably eliminate the two, even though they add a different fabric to the album as a whole. If I have to yank a couple out, it would probably be the songs that don't really fit in as well with the rest of the songs. So I reluctantly have to go with I'm in touch with your world and don't you stop. Only because they're just, I feel like you could probably take those out and the rest of the album is still going to flow together perfectly for me. You're making me do it. So that those are the two that I'm going to choose. Those are the two that I would choose. And my top two were just what I needed and my best friend's girl. You know, you give me two more just what I needed versus I'm in touch with your world and don't just stop. And this album is killer for me, right? Steven, how about your top two, bottom two? Oh, man. So my top two are probably going to be Bye Bye Love and Best Friend's Girl. And that's a tough one. That is super tough because I could have gone either way. I think no matter what, Bye Bye Love would be there. The other one is interchangeable. Best Friend's Girl, I like a lot, but I also like a ton of other to that stuff. What I have to lose, it pains me to say, Joe, don't hang up on me. All mixed up is probably one of them. And it's don't you stop or I'm in touch with your world would be one of the other ones. The problem that I have with losing I'm in touch with your world is that I like the contrast in that song versus everything else. So I kind of like that song a little bit more than don't you stop. So I would probably lose don't you stop. But at the same time, Don't You Stop's a little bit more rock and roll, uh, straight ahead and fast paced. And I like that. So, But I'm going to go with Don't You Stop and All Mixed Up, the two songs at the end of both sides. Those are the two that I lose. Yeah. So before we wrap up, you know, we always try to connect it with Kiss. You wanted the best, but you got the best. The hottest band in the world, Kiss! It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. So Kiss and the Cars, they just don't have a ton of real history together. But on October 21st, 1978, because I'm a numbers nerd, they were battling it out on the Billboard Hot 100. The Cars had just released My Best Friend's Girl as a single, and it was on his second week at number 85. Kiss had just released the four solo albums, and Ace's single New York Groove debuted Four spots ahead at number 81. In the end, New York Groove got to 13. My best friend Girl stalled at 35. Now, we've heard Ace's version many, many times, so I want to talk about a more unique version. If you don't know anything about the band, The Sweet, they were one of the first bands to create all this shit we've come to know as two Queens Right, two Great Whites, two L.A. Guns. Let me explain. From 68 to 81, 
The Sweet was a happy-go-lucky band, classic lineup. Brian Connolly on vocals, Steve Priest on bass, Mick Tucker on drums, Andy Scott on guitar. Brian's the first one to leave. The other three go on as a three-piece for about a minute. Then in 84, we get Brian Connolly's version of the band called The New Sweet. It lasts 13 years until Brian dies in 97. 2008, we get Steve Priest's Sweet that lasted 12 years until Steve dies in 2020. While these two bands are going out, Andy Scott's Sweet hits the scene in 85 with Andy and Mick being the only two originals starting that version of the band. Mick died in 2002, so now it's just Andy, now in Andy Scott's Suite that is still alive and kicking. In 2012, they released this album called The New York Connection, and it included a version of New York Groove. Check this out.
You guys know the suite, Joe? You know the suite? I know the suite. I don't know them really well, but I know the album uh, Desolation Boulevard. Yeah. That's the one album I know of theirs, and I love it. You know, I admit that I don't know a lot about the suite, and I was only introduced to them um, by a Cars fan um, within the last couple of years. And she said, get the Boulevard album. You'll love that. And I really do. It's a great album. It's a great album. Steven, this version of New York Groove is pretty good. It's cool because they kind of intertwine it with that Alicia Keys tune, right? Yeah. It's kind of a cool version. I like the suite. The suite influenced a ton of rock rock and rollers that we love. So I went and started doing a little bit more of a deep dive on the suite. And they've got this anthology thing out that has like 40 songs or something like that. So I went and purchased that. And it was perfect because it has tons of great stuff, tons of stuff that you didn't even know was theirs. And yeah, I mean, I like them They're You know, they were like the one of the early glam bands with these huge stack vocals, almost queen like vocals and a lot of their stuff. So uh, I dig the suite. What I like about them is as far as the glam rock thing goes, they were definitely that glam rock thing, but they were they seemed a little heavier to me. Than like say David Bowie or you know they they were pretty heavy sounding. Well, they were. They took like the raspberries to ten, but they were definitely like Ziggy Stardust out sort of in their haircuts and their platform boots and all this glittery crap that they wore and stuff like that. So right, right. And I get that the suite is a brand name, but I just got a major problem with like if Pete is the CEO of Nike and Cindy's the CFO and Joe's the COO. That you're going to get Joe's Nike and Pete's Nike and Cindy's Nike. Like, come on, dude, really? Just if you're going to not be together, then just go be you. Stop trying to drag the name through the mud. I just don't like that. So this is a perfect segue. The cars and the new cars, because there's a there was a new cars with Hawks and, and um, who was it? It was Hawks. It was Elliot Easton and Todd Rundgren. Todd Rundgren and what and the drummer involved as well, the cars drummer. Uh, no, Prairie Prince from the Tubes. That's right. And this is why Rick is living? Yes. Yeah. Well, oh, that's a bunch of crap. Get, they, they, but they tried to get Rick to come back, and he, he said that he didn't want to do it, but you guys do what you want. So he kind of gave his blessing to them and said, if you want to go out and go on tour, go ahead. I just don't want to do it. Because here's the problem with that, and Sonny's shaking his head, but the issue is really simple. Rick Ocasek owned all the publishing, which means he made bank by sitting at home. Those songs were being played. He got a royalty check every month that was fat. The other guys in the band got shit. And so the only way that those guys make a living is by getting their asses out on the road and touring. That's the bottom line. You are so right. I I've talked about this. You know, I mean, this interview that we're doing together is really cool to me because we're doing something different. Normally when I do an interview, it's mostly about I just get a bunch of questions thrown at me about the book and that's where it is. And, but when I'm getting interviewed and we're talking, when they're strictly asking me questions about the book, obviously one of the main questions that gets brought up to me is the band breakup and why it happened. And I always reply that, um, if you notice, I don't really talk about the breakup a lot in the book. I mean, I had to include it, of course, because it's a part of their history, but I wasn't there. And there's not two sides to every story. There's a million sides to every story. So I try not to get too involved in the breakup part. But like you just said, Steve, one of the big problems they had was towards the end of the band. And, and I understand it. You know, Rick was kind of tired of being on the road all those years and he wanted to sit back more. 
Well, like you just said, Steve, the other guys in the band are like, well, yeah, and you can sit back and collect your check every month. You know, what are we going to do? How do we make money? The last Cars album that came out door to door, they cut their tour in half. They did half a tour. And that was a really big thing with the rest of the guys in the band. It's like, okay, you don't want to do a new album, right? You don't want to, you don't want to go back in the studio and do something. Now you're telling us you don't want to tour. Well, how are we going to make our money? You know? And that was a big sticking point towards the end. So I can understand the other guys wanting to still go out there and try to do something. You know, maybe they shouldn't have tried to call themselves the new cars and maybe just try to create their own, more of their own identity, if you will. But I can understand why they still go out and play. Yeah, and I get it. The new identity, they're not going to sell any tickets. But if Coverdale wants to sit at home, you can't go out as the new White Snake because, you know, somebody wants to, Reb wants to make money. Like, come on. Well, we've talked about that a million times, too. That's why the big thing nowadays is that who owns the name? Joe, do you know who owns the car's name? Who owns that brand? You know, I technically can't answer that. I'm going to assume. Well, I guess you can't even assume that it was Rick. I don't really know that answer. So basically what I would say to that is if it was a true partnership and the cars was Elliot Easton, Greg Hawks, the drummer, I'm sorry, I can never remember the drummer's name. It's okay, David Robinson. David Robinson, Ben Orr, and Rick Ocasek. So Ben Orr and Rick Ocasek's estates now have a stake in the cars because both of them have passed away. But Elliot Easton, Greg Hawks, I wonder if they can take the band out on the road as the cars, because let's face it, they could sell tickets. There are bands out there now with less original members than two that are making money. And I guarantee you the cars could sell tickets to at least a theater size show. I'd pay to see it because I've never, I've never seen the cars. So I would pay to see the cars featuring Elliot Easton and Greg Hawks. I do it if the singer is going to be somebody that has a name. I'm not going with somebody I don't know because I'm sure Elliot's a great guy. I, I've never met him. I, he's obviously got a lot of talent. I'm sorry. He's not the cars to me, yeah. right? Ben and Rick are the cars to me. Right. And if they're not going to well, be there. They did choose Todd Rundgren, though. It's a pretty big yeah. name. I would go see that. I would go see it if the guy's talented. I don't know if I need it to be a, a name person. I would definitely go see it if it was Todd Rungren. But if the guy was just a talented guy and maybe bought a little bit of a stage show to the show, like moved around, maybe a younger guy or something, I would probably go see that. Well, you know that with all of that said and all three of us having sort of maybe a slightly different opinion on it, the bottom line is it didn't last they did that album. I think it's a live album where they do like covers of classic car songs. And I think they wrote a couple of their own new songs to add to the mix. But when they went on tour, it didn't last. Didn't sell enough tickets. I'm not sure for sure how many shows they did, but it didn't last. And it, it dissolved after less than a year. But they did that. They released that new album in 2011. I believe I have to, I have to honestly admit that I don't own it, but I believe it's, a mixture of reworked car songs plus a couple of new songs, I think. Truthfully, I don't know. I just know that they released a new album in 2011, and I didn't recognize any of the material on it. Oh, no, no. I was talking about the new Cars. No, no. They did release yeah. a Cars album in 2011. We're talking about two different things there. Yeah, we were 2011 about, album's all Rick. 
Yeah, that 2011 album is called Move Like This, and that's all original songs, all written by Rick. And the, the other four guys are in the band. It's not all written by Rick, though. It's Rick Ocasek and something called Jackknife something or other. Like something I didn't recognize, like Jackknife something. Yeah, Jackknife Lee. Yeah, that dude. I didn't know that he was a contributing songwriter. I'll have to look at that because I do own the album. Um, Jackknife Lee was the producer of the album. Uh-huh. And when the four surviving members of the Cars decided to get back together and record this album, they also decided they weren't even going to try to replace Ben. We're not going to bring in another singer. We're not going to bring in another bass player. And Greg Hawks and Jackknife Lee, who was the producer of the album, they both contributed all the bass parts. They didn't even try to replace Ben. But you're, I'll have to look at the album and see. Maybe Jackknife did do some lyrics. Yeah, according to the almighty source of Wikipedia, which is never wrong, by the way, <laughs> the songs look like they're evenly written by Rick Ocasek and Jackknife Lee. So, I mean, it, it's either one or the other's name on the writing credits. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I saw. So. Wow, I have to check it out. I do know that Jackknife Lee did produce the album, and he did contribute some bass parts. And um, I'm sorry that we got a little mixed up there, because we went from talking about the new cars, which featured yeah. Todd Rundgren and Prairie Prince on drums, and then we kind of segued into that Cars album they did in 2011. See, that's the problem with having all these Cars bands, just like all the other bands that Sonny yeah. and I talked about. It's confusing us listeners. All I want to know is when can I go and start referring to myself as Jackknife Steve? Sonny, can I start that? Please? No. Why? No. Why? Uh, by, the way, by the way, the new Cars album, it was called It's Alive 2006. Run Grin on lead vocals, Easton on guitar, Hawks on keyboards, Prairie Prince on drums, Kasim Sultan on bass guitar, and the songs they did, Just What I Needed, Let's Go, Candy Oh, You Might Think, My Best Friend's Girl, I Saw the Light, which is Rundgren's song, You're All I've Got Tonight, Not Tonight, which is a new song written by Rundgren, Hawks, and Easton, Drive, Moving in Stereo, Shake It Up, Dangerous Type, Bye Bye Love, Open My Eyes, which is a Rundgren song, and Good Times Roll. So they did a couple of originals, and then a bunch of redid car songs. Okay. Huh. And I don't own that, so I don't really have too much of an opinion on it. All I know is they tried to go on tour, and it didn't last very long. Yeah, it looks like they sold three and a half copies, so don't worry about it. <laughs> 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 oh, that's awful. <laughs> All right, Joe. <laughs> This has been great fun, man. We could talk about the cars all night long, obviously, but we got to cut this at some point. So, Joe, why don't you plug your book one more time? Tell folks where they can get it, the best way to uh, do all that stuff. And like I said, I'll put all this in the show notes. So if people are driving down the road, no need to try and get a pen and hang one foot out the window while you write and drive with your uh, foot on the steering wheel. It's okay. <laughs> Another cars reference, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, um, first of all, I want to thank you guys for having me on. This has really been a lot of fun. And like I said, a lot of my interviews, um, you know, there's only a certain amount of questions you can ask somebody about a, about a book they've done. So I always kind of, I've been told that I worry about it too much, but sometimes I worry. I'm like, I don't want to be too repetitive and I want to try to find new ways to explain things about the book and that kind of stuff. So in the back of my mind, I always kind of worry that I'm just being too repetitive about things. But this was a new approach and something different. So I really appreciate you guys having me on. This has really been cool getting to talk about the debut album. And I've really had a lot of fun. So about my book, 
the easiest way for people to get the book, I have a website for the book. And so people can go there and there's some photos there and it talks a little bit about the process of writing it so they can see if they want to get it or not. And it's really easy. www.benorbook.com. So people can go to my website and check it out. I also have a Facebook page for the book, which I created four or five years before the book even came out. So I, so people could start following me as I was getting closer to, to getting this book put out. And all they have to do is plug in the title and Facebook and the page will come up. Let's go, Benjamin Orr on the cars. The reason I mentioned the Facebook page is some fans like to get a hold of me personally through the Facebook page because I always have copies of the book in my office and I can personalize them for people. So if somebody wants to get a copy of the book directly from me, they can. So those are the two easiest ways. Of course, you can go on there and go to Amazon or whatever, but you can either go to benorbook.com or if you want to get a hold of me personally to get a personalized copy, um, you can find me on Facebook and go that route as well. So those are the two easiest ways to get a book. Yep. And I'll be hitting you up with that pretty soon. I want to definitely pick up one and get you to autograph it and send it to me. Is there one more quick thing I can mention if you don't mind? You can mention whatever you want. Whether I keep it or not is to be seen because <laughs> I can take out all kinds of shit from here on out. Joe, you windbag. This is way too long. I'm cutting <laughs> half of this stuff out. Joe, you don't have to worry about repeating yourself because I'm going to take all that shit out. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm leaving this part in where I'm telling you I'm taking all that shit out. Oh, my God. That's so funny. Um, well, I thought of this when you mentioned earlier when you said that you never got a chance to see the cars. And I, I'm assuming that, you know, you wish you had. I never got to see the band either, um, the original lineup. I, I don't know why. I was going to concerts all through the 80s. And for some odd reason, I never got to see the cars and never went to see them. However, I do want to mention that. One of the coolest moments of my life right up there with actually having the book come out was I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony in 2018 when the band got inducted into the Rock Hall. I was in the venue. Obviously, Ben wasn't there, um, but I felt like he was there. I know it sounds cliche, but to see the band get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Ben's hometown, and he is only the second native Clevelander to ever get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Steven, do you know who the other one was? The other one would be the one, the only, Bobby Womack, baby. You Bobby Womack, baby. Bobby Womack. That's awesome. There's a bunch of Ohio people, like uh, Chrissy Hind is from Akron, Ohio, and, you know, Joe Walsh. I mean, there's a lot. Ohio has a rich history of music. But Ben is only the second native Clevelander. So here's this guy who quit school when he was a sophomore, because I want to be a professional musician. It's the only thing he ever wanted to do in his life. And he comes full circle 50 some odd years later and gets inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in his hometown. Yeah. Can't get too much better than that. So I'd like to say that I got to see the band get inducted into the Rock Hall. Ben's only son was there representing him. And it was just very cool. They did like five songs on stage together. And I know it was minus Ben. But I just wanted to make a little side note that I did get to see them get inducted into the Rock Hall, and that was a really cool thing. I watched that uh, whole induction ceremony today on YouTube while I was doing the research for this. And at the top of this episode, you heard the uh, end of the induction speech by uh, Brandon Flowers from The Killers, who's the one that inducted them with the speech. And that's what uh, kicked off this episode. So great memory for sure. Thanks for sharing. Brandon, thanks for doing that. Stop copying or trying to cover 
just what I needed because you can't do it. <laughs> okay, Brandon, love you. Love the killers. Stop doing car songs, please. Brandon Flowers, you'll never be on the Grown Up Rock podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, you got no shot now, man. <laughs> we got no shot. Not that we would have ever asked him, but anyway. <laughs> so it's been a pleasure, Joe. It's been awesome, man. This has been a really good episode. It was really fun revisiting this record because, as I've said many times, this record was super important to me growing up. And Sonny, I, I had no idea all the little tie-ins with Sonny and his dad. And yeah, it's cool. So good stuff. One more thing I will say is that going through this record, I realized this actually is a Desert Island record for me now because there's not anything that I would really skip off this record. So that's something that I didn't realize back when I when I got it. But yeah, listening back to it now, I'm kind of like, yeah, this is actually a Desert Island record for me. So it's cool. Well, Steve and Sonny, again, I really appreciate you guys having me on. This has really been a lot of fun. And I really like how it's you have a little different way of doing things. That's all you guys. And I watched the Van Halen episode, and I'm going to go back and watch some more now because you got a new fan. And uh, once uh, this gets put out there, I'm going to I'm gonna promote the heck out of you guys. You do a really good job, and I appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. Well, hopefully you're not watching anything because there's nothing to watch, but you are uh, uh, you are listening to it. <laughs> if you're, hey, YouTube, you know what I mean, you wise ass. <laughs> if you're watching it, all you're watching is a... <laughs> <laughs> take the counter going round, but Sunny <laughs> and I have faces for radio, as we say. Oh no, this face is made for TV right here. No, it's that not. That's is radio. <laughs> you and that Iron Maiden shirt. That's right, baby. Don't talk about Joe that way. <laughs> no, it's been thanks. Hey, thanks to the listeners. We appreciate you guys each and every week tuning in. We hopefully you enjoyed this little bit of a different episode for us. Uh, and you go back and you visit uh, this uh, debut Cars record and make sure you go out there and support Joe Milligan and pick up that Cars book on Ben Orr's life because it's a fantastic book. Sonny. Yeah, thanks, everybody, for listening. We're going to go find the guy who wrote the Flock of Seagulls book and do that next, and we'll see you soon. See ya. Later. Bye. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.